Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com slash governance. IBM. Let's create. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? Actually, wait. Before we get started, let, let's high five real quick. <laughs> okay. High five. And, oh, and, and fist bump. <laughs> And, oh, yeah, and chest bump. <laughs> I feel like you're just stalling. What, what, what's this all about? Well, there's, there, this is actually very relevant. There, there's research from the NBA that shows that a good predictor of team performance is how often the team high fives or fist bumps, <laughs> chest bumps, and head slaps. So I feel like it might help us have a good show. <laughs> I'm going to draw the line at head slapping, but uh, that is pretty interesting. I'm, I'm not 100% sure what the head slapping thing is, even though I watch <laughs> a lot of basketball, but... There's actually another basketball fact that I think is even more interesting. After looking at the results of tens of thousands of NBA and college games, these researchers found that teams trailing by a single point at halftime are actually more likely to win than the teams winning by a point. In fact, they found it was statistically equivalent to a two-point halftime lead. Oh, that's crazy. So why is that? Well, it's all about timing. So the science of perfect timing is pretty fascinating. And to help us make sense of it, we've got Daniel Pink, the brilliant author of a brand new book called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And he's here to explain it all. So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikater. And the man on the other side of the soundproof glass, playing Cindy Lopper's time after time, very softly in our headphones. <laughs> That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. I didn't realize what it was until he slowly turned it off. That rascal. Anyway, Mango, are you ready to talk about perfect timing? I am. You know, I think what's so striking in reading Daniel's book was just how little science we've put behind our decisions on when to do certain things. Like we constantly analyze how to do things, how to take a test, how to organize a productive meeting, how to be healthier. But when it comes to the when decisions, 
we really leave that to a gut feeling. So I'm super excited to talk to Daniel Pink about his research because this book is really fascinating. I'm with you on that. All right. Well, let's not hold off any longer. Today, we're joined by the author of several books, including the New York Times bestsellers Drive, To Sell as Human, and A Whole New Mind. But his newest book that just came out yesterday, actually, is called Win, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Daniel Pink, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, Daniel, you open the book with a story about a study out of Cornell. There are these two sociologists. They're doing a big data analysis of 500 million tweets, you know, along Mm -hmm. with the other research that have helped find these patterns of the day. So can you talk a little bit about that? And and how the heck do you do an analysis of 500 million tweets? Yeah, well, fortunately, I didn't do this analysis. Uh, (laughs) These guys at Cornell did it. And it's actually one of the interesting things about how research is done these days and how we can use giant uh, amounts of data to find hidden insights. So essentially what they did was this. So tweets, remember, are actual text, right? So they're they're words or letters, uh, characters. And um, there is a piece of software called LUC. That's the acronym, L-I-W-C, for the Linguistic Inventory Word Count. This software allows us to measure what essentially the emotional content of the word. So if if I look at a word uh, like, like bummed out, they say, oh, okay, that's, someone who's a little bit low emotion, Mm -hmm. uh, excited, high emotion. And so what you can do is that instead of going through these things one by one, this is the great thing about computers' ability to crunch these numbers, they throw all of these 500 million tweets into this program. And their question is, does people's mood as reflected by these tweets change over the course of a day? Mm. And the answer was, heck yeah. (laughs) And how so? Well, what they found was, this really intriguing pattern. There was a peak, a trough, and a recovery. And again, this is obviously controlled for time zone. Uh, early in the day, where people had a more positive mood, that positive mood was fairly steady until about noon. Then in the early to mid-afternoon, it began to dip. It dipped considerably uh, over the afternoon and then rose again in the late afternoon, early evening. And what they found were essentially three stages, a peak, a trough, and a recovery. That is, we had positive mood in the morning, uh, pretty uh, strong dive in mood in the early to mid-afternoon, and then a recovery later in the day. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, so so obviously, you know, we're not all the same. And uh, we've talked a little bit about, like, circadian rhythms in, in our episode on sleep a while back. But you talk about chronotypes and how to use them to perform best. Can you tell us exactly what a chronotype is and how people would identify themselves as whatever? So there's a whole field of study called chronobiology and chrono for time, biology for study of life. And it looks at exactly as you say, our, our daily rhythms. What it finds is that people have certain types, certain propensities. Some of us rise early, fall asleep earlier. Some of us rise late, fall asleep late. Some people are larks, morning people. Some people are owls, evening people. But the truth is that most of us are kind of in between what I like to call third birds. And if you're a lark or a third bird, you generally go through the day in that in the order that I just mentioned, a peak, a trough, a recovery that you have in the mornings. You're generally at your best, both in terms of mood and in terms of vigilance. In the early afternoons, there's a pretty significant deterioration and then some kind of recovery later in the day. For the, but the one in five of us who are very strong owls, nighttime types, these are people who go to sleep just naturally very late and wake up late. People for whom eight o'clock staff meetings are just a form of torture. <laughs> uh, those folks tend to go in more or less the reverse order, recovery, trough, peak. 
And that would probably be you, Mango. Yeah, you definitely. Say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what like, time do you? Well, here's a, here's a test. Let's we can test you right now. All right, we'll do we'll do the basic back of the envelope chronotype test here. So uh, so let's say it's a day where you don't have to wake up to an alarm clock, which for many people is a weekend. Okay. So what time would you usually go to sleep? Yeah, I mean, I, I think kids have thrown everything off, but I, I think probably between three and four. You know. Oh my lord! Yeah. You're talking about four a.m. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I don't even have to do the rest of this time. <laughs> um, and what time would you usually wake up? Uh, I don't know. About, by about 10, I'd say. 10? Okay. Yeah. So so what we would do in this case is we'd, we'd find your your midpoint of sleep. So if you um, – if so your midpoint of sleep, if you go to sleep at 3 and wake up at 10, your midpoint of sleep would guess, be 6.30 a.m., uh, which would make you a – uh, pretty strong owl. <laughs> I'd say that's a pretty strong yeah, owl. Yeah, yeah. About one out of five people are pretty strong owls. Um, and so, I like you know, the, you, I like the designation of a strong owl. Yeah, he's a very <laughs> strong owl. Yeah. Or uh, so. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's pretty owly. Uh, how old are you? If you don't mind me asking. <laughs> I'm uh, 38. Oh man! Oh man! You're a serious owl then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, congratulations. He, he, he's been that way for a long time. In college, he was paired up with another owl, and so we all had to be aware that they would just wake up at about, uh, what, about 2 in the afternoon and talk <laughs> well, about what they were going to get for breakfast. Well, what. What's interesting is that is that, that that's one reason I asked you your age is that most of us go through a period between about age 14 and 24 when we become the owliest in our life. Um and that has to do with hormones and whatever. So there's a, a pretty significant shift beginning basically post-puberty uh, where people shift literally in some cases two, three hours uh, later into the day. Um, but then as time goes on, they go back to their earlier. So, so what you have is you have like little kids, as I think Magish has discovered, are pretty lark, pretty lark. <laughs> they get up pretty and we basically are, are strong larks early in our life and then later in our life. Uh, the older you get, the larkier you become in general. Well, you talk about this a little bit in, in the book when you're talking about those teenage years. And, and we've heard this before, the advocacy for a later start time. You know, in the American Academy of Pediatrics actually issuing a policy statement, urging schools to start. I think it was no no earlier than 830. And yet... Right. You know, fewer than one in five schools actually follow this, as you indicated in the book. Why do you think that is? Because they don't take these timing questions seriously. They don't take questions of when seriously. Mm-hmm. These schools, and, and, and I don't mean to pick on schools because I think it's true for all our institutions. We take very seriously, okay, what are we going to do? All right, so they take curriculum very seriously. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? How are we going to teach it? We have professional development days to improve our pedagogy. How are we going to do it? Who are we going to do it with? They take hiring pretty seriously. Um, and, but then we take these questions of when and we say, ah, oh, that doesn't really matter. That's like we, we, we take these questions of when and we sit them at the kids' table rather than at the grown-ups' table. And that's a huge mistake. These questions of when, these questions of timing, as you're saying with school start times, have a material effect on people's well-being. School start times alone, um, there is evidence that these early start times, again, for people who are very hourly, who which t- teenagers tend to be starting school at seven thirty in the morning is ridiculous. They're barely even awake. Yeah. And the consequence of that is dire. They'll, you have um, higher uh, rates of depression, higher rates of obesity, increased uh, incidence of auto accidents, higher dropout rates, reduced performance on standardized tests. And schools that have done something about this, 
And again, we're not we're not we're not talking about like a, a mangish schedule where you start school at three in the afternoon. <laughs> we're 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 talking about like starting it at like nine in the morning rather right. than seven thirty in the morning. Mm-hmm. Schools that have made those that, that modest step have basically followed the recommendations of the American Academy of Pediatrics have seen, lo and behold, higher test scores, lower dropout rate. If you just think about the workplace, time of day explains about 20 percent of the variance in our performance on cognitive tasks. So, you know, 20 percent. So it doesn't mean the timing is everything, but it means it's a freaking big thing. Right, right, right. Well, well, speaking of that material difference, as you mentioned, you know, not just affecting uh, teenagers, but adults as well. You you talk about this Bermuda Triangle of our days in the afternoons. And and we we all know that there tends to be that afternoon slump. We've all experienced that, especially after Mangesh and I have been downstairs eating uh, ramen for lunch and then <laughs> feel that <laughs> mid-afternoon slump. But but actually hearing from you and hearing the hard evidence of this, whether yeah. it's with standardized tests or even results from juries, can you talk a little yeah. bit about that impact? It's huge and it's terrifying. There's research from Denmark showing that kids score systematically lower if they take standardized tests in the afternoon versus they take them in the morning. Okay? Uh, so just think about that in terms of the extent to which standardized tests affect the kids' fate or they affect education policy. Again, time of day is having this massive effect, but it's invisible to us. Uh, if you look at something like um, you, you make an interesting point about, about juries or criminal justice system. There's some really good experimental evidence showing that if you have two defendants, it's a famous experiment. One one named uh, some participants have a defendant named uh, Robert Garner. Some have one named Roberta Garcia. And if you have the same set of facts, juries that deliberate in the morning treat those defendants the same. Juries that have the same set of facts and deliberate in the afternoon during this trough period, guess what? They are more likely to convict Garcia and exonerate Garner on the same set of facts. Wow. And that's terrible right there. crazy. Yeah. Um, but, but, but wait, there's more because now we can go into health care. Doctors and nurses are far less likely to wash their hands in the afternoons than in the mornings. If you look at if, if you look at things like anesthesia, you're three times more likely to have an anesthesia error in an afternoon procedure than in a morning procedure. Um, terrifying. Yeah, the whole thing is terrifying. And, and so over uh, even even if we look at things like uh, auto accidents, there's some good research out of the UK. You know, when do auto accidents peak if you're just for how many cars are on the road? Mm-hmm. Big surprise. They peak between like four and six a.m. OK, because it's the middle of the night and it's really dark. But the second most common time is between 2 and 4 p.m. Yeah. It's perfectly light outside. Huh. Yeah. We don't take these kinds of time of day effects nearly seriously enough, and they have a big, big effect on literally, in some cases, life and death. Oh, these are some scary statistics. Now, we have several more questions for you, but before we get to those, let's take a quick break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. 
We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education selection and value like diamonds direct your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at diamonds direct won't last long details at diamondsdirect.com your credit card should match your lifestyle at kemba financial credit union choose a card with benefits that work for you for a limited time all cards have two percent cash back on purchases and zero percent interest on balance transfers for a year apply at kemba.org restrictions apply offer ends june 30th 2024 Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. We're talking to Daniel Pink, the author of When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Daniel, I, I know we talked about the fact that I'm not a morning person, but I was curious about morning exercise because that's something you talk about in your book. Can you tell yeah. us about the benefits of doing it then versus the afternoon and what it means for your body? Yeah, this is something that I was really interested in because I was trying to figure it out for myself. Um, and so um, it's pretty easy to figure out whether you should exercise in the morning or the afternoon. It all depends on what your goals are. So if your goals are to lose weight, exercise in the morning. You're going to burn off more calories than typically. Uh, if you exercise in the morning, you're going to get a mood boost for a bigger period of the day. If you exercise later in the day, you might sleep through some of that mood boost. Uh, there's some good evidence showing that morning exercise makes us slightly more likely to stick to the routine. And testosterone levels actually peak in the morning. If you're doing some strength-based training, mornings can be good for that. On the other hand, afternoon, late afternoon is good for uh, other kinds of things. So one of the big things that affects our physiology over the course of a day is a change in body temperature, believe it or not. And when our body temperature tends to rise to its highest point in the late afternoon and early evening, um, that makes our muscles warmer. And so we're more likely to avoid injury. So if you're prone to injury, you're concerned about injury, afternoon exercise is better. Uh, there's some really intriguing evidence showing that you might actually perform at a higher level during afternoon and early evening activity um, because lung function is the highest, your strength is higher, your reaction time is higher. There's some very intriguing evidence about athletic records, particularly in speed events, disproportionately being broken at between about four and seven local time. Um, That's really fascinating. Uh, and it's all about our, you know, basically about our body temperatures. Also, uh, again, this is related up, and this is actually ended up sealing the deal for me, is that because we're doing a little bit better, we're, you know, our, our lung function is a little bit higher, our muscles are warmer, we're not risking exercise, we're not risking injury as much, that people tend to um, enjoy the workouts a little bit more in the afternoon, even if they're doing the exact same thing in the morning, they, they feel a little less taxing. Um, and so uh, for me, I am an, uh, an afternoon, early evening exerciser. And I think it's for that last reason. When I, when I go do exercise in the morning, I hate it. Right. It, feels like, it feels like torture. When I do it in the afternoon, I actually enjoy it a little bit more. And so you know, if I were trying to lose a lot of weight, I might change, I might change things. But I exercise just so I don't go crazy. And yeah. so afternoon, um, afternoon works for me. And I think it's because of just that my body is warmed up. I'm performing at a little bit of higher level and it's just, it's less unpleasant than it is in the mornings. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, back to the idea of, of productivity and things that we can do to to be more productive. You talk about you know the importance of uh, or or the the value of of napping. Can you and and I think we we've we've heard that before. But can you talk a little bit about you know what the ideal nap is and what we're looking for in that and and trying to be more productive? Yeah, the ideal nap is a lot shorter than I ever realized. Uh, I was you know I'm not a I haven't been a big napper. And the reason is that when I woke up from a nap, I, I felt I felt terrible. I felt you know groggy and mm-hmm. you know cobwebs in my head. Um, and what I discovered essentially is that I was doing it wrong. That the ideal nap is 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 very very short, maybe you know usually no more than twenty minutes or so. Um, and what happens if we nap longer than that is that we begin to accumulate what's called sleep inertia. That's that boggy groggy feeling that we have. And it takes us some time to dig out of that to get the benefits of the nap. So you basically start with a deficit and then have to climb out of the deficit. Uh, if you have a nap of 20 minutes or so, you get a lot of the benefit without any of the deficit. And so these super short naps, uh, you know, literally between 10 and 20 minutes, seem to be uh, the maximum bang for the buck when it comes to napping. Which I I love because I'm from a siesta culture. Yeah. <laughs> All my relatives Always in India sleep in the afternoons. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's something to be said for you know. What's what's interesting is that in the the blaze of Westernization and American style capitalism, we've obliterated siestas. When in fact, there's actually some pretty good scientific evidence for restoring some kind of modern siesta. I mean, I'm not talking about taking three hours. Um, for lunch every single day, but basically taking breaks and pauses much more seriously than we take them right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one of the things, because I'm so focused on mornings now, <laughs> I, I want to ask about is uh, breakfast and how important it really is and where meals play a role in, in uh, you know, having the most productive days. Um, is breakfast important? I think the answer from the research is a clear and conclusive maybe. Um, um, some of the, uh, some of the, uh, and this has to do with some of the methodologies, uh, which are observational studies rather than randomized control experiences. So, you know, these observational studies found that people who eat breakfast are healthy, but we don't know whether breakfast is causing their healthiness. It could just be that healthy people like to eat breakfast. Um, people who are already healthy are eating breakfast and it has no causal effect, et cetera, et cetera. Some of these pro breakfast studies were actually funded by cereal companies. So that should make us raise our eyebrows a little bit. In terms of time of day and eating, there's some very interesting research, pretty new stuff right now on what's called uh, time-restricted feeding that's showing that you could, you, you might be able to get a certain greater weight loss if you restrict your eating to a certain 10 or 12-hour period. Um, and that weight gain could be, a factor in weight gain could be eating too late in the day. Um, that's, it's, it's at early stages now. It's pretty intriguing. I actually looked at some of the research on lunch, and it turns out that lunch is a pretty powerful – again, here I'm not talking about physiology. I'm talking about psychology. Uh, lunch ends up being a pretty powerful restorative for us, much more than I would have expected. Uh, there's a very strong argument in the research for taking a lunch break, uh, You know, not just having a tuna salad sandwich dripping onto your computer while you're trying to answer email. <laughs> That's but, every you know, lunch for us. <laughs> but, 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 you know, being intentional and taking a lunch break, it doesn't have to be massive, you know, taking a half an hour and going outside and, you know, if the weather is right, you know, eating a sandwich on a bench and not working. Um, the evidence is showing that that is, restores our energy, can boost our mood, can actually improve our productivity and creativity. 
And the, the larger point here is that, and this is something where I've changed my own behavior, is that just in general, we haven't taken breaks seriously enough. Um, we have thought of breaks as, you know, soft or deviations from performance. I, I am as guilty as anybody about this. I am, I've never been a big break taker. I've always thought it was better just to power through. And it's actually not. Um, that, that breaks all, we have to start thinking of breaks as not a deviation from performance, but actually part of performance and, and, and recognize that part of being a professional means taking a break every once in a while. So when I was reading the book, I, one thing I, I wasn't clear about, and I was just curious from your own perspective, where does social media play into that? Like when you're on a break and eating a sandwich on a, you know, in nature or at a park, how, how does like looking at your phone, uh, influence that? The, the real answer is it depends. So it depends on what you're looking at on your phone. In general, though, uh, what the research shows is that the best breaks, you're fully detached, particularly from work. So if social media is a big part of your work. If you're looking at things, oh, what are they saying about my product or, sure. um, you know, what's in the news that's going to affect my business, uh, then it's actually not that great of an idea. There's a lot to be said for full detachment as breaks rather than semi-detachment. So, so, so for me, for instance, I've changed my, my ways on this is that when I have lunch, I will literally not bring my phone. Um, you know, just, you know, I don't take a long lunch break at all, maybe 25 minutes, 20, 25 minutes, but I will leave my phone in my office. And so I'm, so I don't risk being semi-detached. Um, on the other hand, believe it or not, and this is going to sound crazy, but, um, if you're using social media, and as a form of detachment, that is, you're looking at hilarious videos or something like that that have nothing to do with your work, then it's not the worst thing in the world to have that kind of a break. There's actually <laughs> some evidence. I mean, believe it or not, there's some evidence that people who take breaks watching – it's going to sound like it's made up. It's totally not made up. People who take breaks and watch dog videos during their breaks end up coming back from the breaks a little bit more restored. So that's probably not true for people who run kennels. So it really depends on, you know, how you're using social media. I find it, well, social media is, is, is very complicated and I, and I'm squarely in the middle. I don't consider it, you know, the devil's technology, nor do I consider it the, you know, the panacea for all that ails the world. It's obviously somewhere in the middle of that. What I have found personally, and again, this is just a complete personal experience and observation, not based on any research or anything like that. I find that Twitter raises my stress level. Uh, increases my cortisol level because on Twitter it seems like everybody's always complaining about something or becoming alarmed by something or yelling at somebody. So for that, I find it's not that you, for me personally, it's not that useful. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I know we have a few other big questions for you, Daniel. Uh, before we get to those, let's take a quick break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. We're talking to Daniel Pink, the author of When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Now, Daniel, before you came on, uh, Mango and I were actually talking about some of the studies that were done around the game of basketball. And that fact about being behind uh, a point at the half is actually more advantageous than being ahead by a point. And so why is this and, 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 and what does this mean for us in other areas of our lives? Yeah, I, I love that piece of research. And again, it's another um, one of those insights that scholars have been able to uncover using big data. That particular piece of research, I think it was somewhere around 18,000 NBA games. Just to take a step back, I mean, wh- one of the things it's important to understand is how bizarre this finding is. Because in general, a team that's ahead at halftime has a better chance of winning. Now, that shouldn't be a shocker, okay? Because they have more points, right? right? <laughs> you know, they already have more points, right? And the game's half over, all right? And they have a lead. So, you, you know, mathematically, it's not that complicated. The other thing is, is that their halftime lead could be a proxy that they, hey, they have better players or they have a better coach or something like that. What's interesting is, as you guys point out, is the exception to that, which is that teams that are down by one, are more likely to win. Why is that? And it goes to some of the science of midpoints. Um, midpoints have two effects on our behavior. They either bring us down or they fire us up. And one of the cases where midpoints fire us up is that if we're slightly behind, there's something about being slightly behind at the midpoint that is galvanizing. Now, it, because if you're, if you're way ahead at the midpoint, you can become complacent. If you're way behind, you say, okay, it's over. It's, uh, you know, you, you give up. But both in terms of the, the research on basketball games and also some experimental research, which is a better way to get at causation, uh, is showing that when people feel like they're slightly behind at the midpoint, they work a little harder. And one of the things that you can do, and you, know, you can, you know, at some level you can trick yourself, you can trick your team, or it can be the actual honest account of what's going on. I do this all the time. It is like, okay, I'm at the midpoint of something. I'm slightly behind. I got to get my button gear. Um, and so if you're managing a project, and you hit the midpoint, a team, hey, we're doing pretty well, but we're a little bit behind. Right. That's really galvanizing. That's, that's pretty fascinating. So, And so is that represented in why people do so many marathons at like 29 or 39 in those nine years? That's a different phenomenon. That has to do with endings. You know, as you point out, people who run mar- first-time marathoners 
their age is disproportionately ends in nine. So 29, 39, 49. You say 49-year-olds are three times more likely to run a mar- first-time marathon than 50-year-olds. Wow. Uh, oh, it's crazy. All right? 29-year-olds are twice as likely to run a first-time marathon as 28-year-olds or 30-year-olds. All right? It makes no sense physiologically. But what's happening is that when we get to the end of something, uh, endings also have a galvanizing effect. So when we can see the end, we sometimes kick a little harder. And that's particularly true when it comes to things that are sources of meaning. Um, so people have bucket lists and people have things they want to accomplish in their lives. And people have these these purely arbitrary markers of decades. They say, oh, my gosh, time is moving fast. I got to get going. I'm going to run a marathon. That's pretty amazing. And that's why you're holding off, Mango. You're 38 <laughs> now, and next year is your big year, I think. So 10 years from now, I'll, yeah, yeah, we'll start training. Start training. So uh, I, I know one thing I was curious about is uh, what's the best time to deliver bad news? Do you have any uh, thoughts on that? The best time to deliver bad news? Well, I, mean, I think the best, there's the best time in the best way. The best time to deliver bad news in general uh, is when the recipient's mood is higher, uh, you know, more positive than negative. And what we know in general for most people is that their moods are slightly better in the mornings and in the late afternoons and early evenings than in the afternoon. So that is, I think that's generally a good, in general, it's a good time to do it. In terms of um, the classic formulation that everybody on the planet has used, I've got some good news and some bad news. There's a very, very clear answer. If you have good news and bad news to deliver, always give the bad news first. Um, and the reason for that is that people, it has to do with the science of endings. People prefer endings that elevate. They prefer rising sequences to declining sequences. And so, um, um, and what's interesting about that, and this is again, another area where I've changed my own behavior. I used to be Mr. Okay. I got good news and bad news. Let me give you the good news first, you know, try to lay down that cushion. And, um, and, but when you ask people, what do you want to hear first, the good news or bad news? Four to five people say, I want the bad news first. And so you're better off giving the bad news first uh, and ending with the good news. Um, again, it has to do with our preferences about endings that elevate rising sequences over declining sequences. Well, and I like that you offer a few tips on this, whether it's, you know, how to end vacations or how to end our work days. You know, as you mentioned, people like an elevated ending. Can you can you talk Absolutely. a little bit about some of these suggestions that you've given in the book? I think the most important thing is to be intentional about endings and to, to recognize that their that endings disproportionately affect how people remember entire experiences. So if you look at something like customer transactions, um, I think that businesses should be much more uh, pay much more attention to how uh, a purchase experience ends. Um, uh, so and you can see this anecdotally in Yelp reviews uh, of restaurants. If you if you actually read Yelp reviews of restaurants, you find that a disproportionate number of these Reviews talk about how the meal ended. You know, uh, they screwed up the check and they were jerks about it. They gave me a dessert I didn't expect, and that affects their whole. <laughs> In terms of um, vacations, pick one of the what you think is going to be one of the best moments and put it toward the end. The end of an experience disproportionately affects our memory of it. I've got some great examples from teachers around the country about how teachers have marked the end of a semester or the end of a year. Uh, one, one of my favorites is this fellow who's a economics teacher at a high school outside of Chicago. And uh, what he does is that at the end of people's senior years, he has them write a letter to themselves that he mails to them five years later. Just an awesome thing. Uh, there's another, uh, college teacher who at the end of a semester, she takes her students out, 
uh, to a local pub and they make toasts to each other. And so just being intentional about endings uh, and giving them a little bit of lift can dramatically shape how people remember an entire year-long, semester-long experience. That's really good. And you talk a little bit about how we might end our work days. I thought there were some great suggestions there as well. Sure. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I th- again, I think it's a lot. I think it's a lot about being intentional about how we end our workday. So one of the things that you can do at the one of the things you can do at the very end of your workday, and something that I do is that I actually mark my progress. I actually use an app called I Done This that sends me an email at the end of every day. It says, what'd you get done today? And I make sure to ritualize, okay, here's what I got done today. Mm. So I have a sense of progress. So I mark that progress. Um, there's some great research from Teresa Amabile at Harvard Business School about how making progress is the single largest day-to-day motivator on the job. So that's one of the things that I myself do. I, you can also do things like there's something about a sense of completion. So one of the things I try to do, I don't always do a good job of this, is lay out what I'm going to do the following day. So I have a sense of completion. I can kind of close the door on the day, take a break, detach from work to the extent that's possible. Uh, there are also things at the end of the day as, as mood boosters. Uh, one of the, you know, it's, it's really remarkable, the research on doing something good for somebody else boosts our mood. It's, it ends up being doing something good for someone else can be a profoundly selfish act in terms of its benefit to us. So, you know, maybe at the end of the day, thank somebody who you hadn't thanked before. But again, it's really about being aware and being intentional. Um, and and these, these small things can make a big difference. Well, before we end here, I, I did want to ask you a little bit about uh, the sinker's high and uh, the tips on syncing with other people, because I really like that bit in your book. Uh, could, could you talk yes. a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, I also have a chapter on, on how groups synchronize in time. So whether they're people who are delivering lunches, whether they're rowers, whether they're choral singers, and um, there is something about synchronizing with other people in time that makes us feel really, really good. There is some good evidence on rowers high that, that when we synchronize with other people, actually our pain thresholds increase, our immune response improves. Uh, at a physiological level, we do better. There's some um, incredible effects to our mood and uh, even to our propensity to, to do good deeds afterwards. So it's really quite fascinating. I don't have a great explanation for it. I just noted the phenomenon and some of the research behind it. But there's something about synchronizing with other people in time, like choral singing, that makes us feel really, really good, that could be somehow evolutionarily programmed to feel good because it has some kind of advantage to us. That's really interesting. Well, we, as we said at the top of the show, this is uh, it, it's interesting that it's been, we've gone this long without really thinking about the win of all these questions, as we've talked about before. You know, we've focused so much on the how and the why, but this has been so fascinating to learn these things. And listeners, I hope you'll check out this new book, Win the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Daniel Pink, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks to you guys both for a great interview. It was a lot of fun. again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Carrie Rowland does the exact producer thing. 
Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Jason who? Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings.